time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Hey, this is Lee Balkum, and this is the Thrivology Podcast, the podcast where we talk about how to thrive better in life. It's not really a question of whether you're thriving or not. It's can you raise the level of your thrive? We all have some level of thriving. We also have some level of surviving these days. Sometimes that feels a little closer to the surface. And so for the past few weeks, since the beginning of the year, I've been talking about the thrive code. And today we're going to continue. In fact, today we're going to wrap it up by talking about compassion and how you find compassion and how important that is in your thriving life. So stay tuned. But first, let me tell you about the other pieces of this thriving code. We started off the very beginning of the year because it's my word of the year, the word I'm focusing on, and that is challenge. Challenge was focused on the fact that we as humans need some challenge. And and a lot of times what we end up doing in life is trying to eliminate any challenge in life. how, How can we make it easy, right, to find the simple approach, to hack it apart until it's so easy that there's no more challenge. And in fact, we live in a very um, eased culture. Food is constantly available. And now we know that our body needs some challenge of times when we're not eating so regularly. That's the intermittent fasting that has actually a, a positive effect on our health. And also to the fact that our body needs a challenge, for instance, of temperature and sometimes even to grow our muscle. Um, All those things I talked about that first week. The second piece of what we talked about was control. It's really about controlling what you can control instead of wasting lots of energy and time trying to control the things that you cannot control. That was week number two. The week after that, I talked about community and how different that is than living in tribal exclusivity. Community is inviting, and how can we find more senses of community and connection by living our lives within that place of community? Then we talked about contribution and how we as humans have within us the need to give back, to find some place of giving as contribution. What do we bring to the world? Sometimes our contribution is how we bring our attitude into the world, how we contribute to how the day is moving for other people. Other times it's by giving. Sometimes it's by supporting. But the fact is that some way we're all looking for how can we leave the world better than we found it? How can we contribute back to the world. Then after that, we talked about how we need to create, that that is also in our nature as humans to be creators. I mean, you look around and you can see the vastness of what we've created all around us, either either in the good ways or sometimes in the bad ways. But there's something that calls within each of us to be creative in everything we do in our life and to see the creativity and bring that into what we do enlivens our lives in many ways. Then we talked about curiosity and the importance of curiosity, of looking and learning, of observing and of pulling more information from around us by that natural curiosity, that that is a linchpin to how we can grow, how we can change, how we can bring more thriving into our life. And then last week in the last episode, I talked about clarity, the need to have some clarity in life of, of direction, 
But clarity is much bigger than that because sometimes our clarity changes from moment to moment. What you see in your view can change. Sometimes we fall into the trap of believing that we have to have this sense of clarity of life. Like I can see from now, from here, all the way to the end of my life. And if you think about it differently, it's more like clarity of, of, of traveling on a trip, right? My clarity is as far as I can see right now. But when I get to the end of that, I'll see more. And so our clarity is ever expanding in front of us and looking for the clarity in our lives, the clear path that we want to follow instead of just kind of stumbling around and feeling our way through of having some, some sense of that clarity. And that brings us to the last piece of this code. So why do I call it the Thrive Code? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is oftentimes people have this code that they live by. It's their personal code. And that's one sense of that word. Like I have this code of conduct. You might be familiar with like the warrior's code or some other code that's out there. And this is the thriver's code, the pieces of what we can follow in daily life to let our life unfold in more and more thriving ways. But another way to think of that word is like the code that runs a computer. It's not the computer mechanism and it's not even what an app might do. But how it all fits together underneath, how there's a feedback underneath that tells the programs what to do to get to the result you want. That code floats underneath the surface. And when it imbues your body, then how you move through life, how it imbues your mind and how you process the world ends up allowing you to have a sense of, of how things fit together. So that brings us to this last piece of finding compassion. And let me first say, I'm not suggesting you don't have compassion and I don't have compassion. We have to somehow find it somewhere as much as there's always the task of finding compassion in different situations. Sometimes it's easy for us to have compassion in one area, but we might struggle to find it in another area. So first, let's just talk about compassion and what it is. I want to use it as a a broader sense But to pull it down to its basics, compassion comes from two root words, calm, which is with, calm, with, right? And passion, suffering, to suffer with. And I want to bring that to a wider sense of understanding the struggle of someone else, to to pull alongside them and walk with them, to be a part of their struggle through life, not just the suffering, but the struggles of life that may be just tough. So to understand what somebody is going through, and let's take it one step further, to understand what we're going through when we talk about self-compassion. And so we're actually talking about two pieces of this code. One piece is the compassion we would have for another person, and the other is the self-compassion, the compassion we can hold for ourselves. One of the things I've noticed is that many times it seems that people are running on a shortage of compassion for certain people, for certain situations, for certain groups of people. And that is why we find ourselves stuck. Martin Buber was a uh, theologist and a philosopher that talked about the fact that we can have two different relationships with objects. And he called it the I-it and the I-thou relating. 
I it is when I treat something or someone like an object and all I see is their utility. I thou is when I personalize them and I see them as fully human with all the depths of pain and all the depths of life that comes their way, their experiences and how they might feel about things. And, and suddenly I have a deeper connection. And what Buber says is that we are always capable of turning somebody into an I-it relationship to see them as only an object. So, for instance, if you've ever maybe been in a restaurant and seen somebody who is acting like the waitstaff wait is just there to serve them. They don't have any care about how difficult that might be for the other person. Don't care what's going on for the other person. It's just you do your thing, right? Give me what I want. Now, there is a place where that person is there to help you along in your meal. So there is that utility function. But to remove the fact that that is actually a human doing that work is where it moves into the full I-it. And Buber says that we do that not just in these utilitarian places, but with groups of people of reducing groups, whole groups of people into objects to make them less than us. And that's what happens in an I-it relationship. I have to see whatever that other, the it is, whether it's a person or a thing, as less than me is not equal to me, is not deserving to be equal with me. I thou, though, always sees the other as the person with all the struggles of being a person. And maybe being different from me, maybe having different beliefs from me, having different struggles from me, but still having a connection with me because we are co-human. We're in this together. And that's where compassion comes in, to be able to imagine the struggles of that other person. To be able to understand my own struggles is the heart of compassion. So what are these problems? Why do we have a shortage of compassion with both ourselves and others? Well, it comes from different pieces. One piece is the judgmental nature of humans. We end up being very judgmental. Um, and what we often do is make a mistake that it's, a, it's an error in thinking. The attribution error is one way of expressing it. The attribution error is when you say, you know, you, you and somebody else might do something wrong and you see them and what they did wrong and you understand it as they have a character flaw. There's something wrong with them. <laughs> That's why they did that. But if you do the same thing, you excuse yourself. You made a mistake. So somebody lies about something and you say they're, they're horrible. You can never trust that person again. The fact is that you likely lie about things. And I would say you absolutely do. But somebody might challenge me on that fact. But research shows that we all are dishonest in many ways. But we say, well, I did that to not hurt the other person's feelings. Or I did that because they wouldn't understand. Or, or some other explanation. We explain it away. And so our judgmental side, if we lose touch with our compassion means that we're always looking for what's wrong with the other person, what they did wrong. The second thing that happens is we become dismissive of others, as if they're not worth being at a same level. And this can happen whether it's based on race or education or what part of the country they live or what political party they hold to or some other thing, but we end up being dismissive of them and not seeing them as us. We are, after all, all humans. 
The third thing that comes out of this is we become very self-centered when we lose touch with that compassion. We're focused on what's going on with me, not what's going on with all of us, how we're all in this situation. And what leads from that is we tend to self-aggrandize that I deserve more. You know, it's the old thing that marketers and advertisers have used for years, which is you deserve. Whether it's you deserve a break today, or you deserve to be loved, or you deserve to have sex today, or you deserve the best new car, or you deserve to live beyond anyone else, you deserve it. I've heard lots of interviews uh, with people who are asked why they have so much, and they almost always reference their hard work that they deserve it, they've earned it. Which somehow discounts the fact that there are others who work just as hard, if not harder, who will never have that level. But we self-aggrandize when we believe that we have somehow earned it. Now, let me be clear, I'm not saying that, you know, it's, it's ever gonna be all equal, that's not the point. The point is we lose touch with the struggle that someone else might have because we self-aggrandized and we have become self-centered. We lose track of that. And the final thing that happens following all of that is that we stop addressing, addressing the systemic issues that lead us to where we are. Pretty much all the experts say that much of the strife we're seeing today is somehow caused by inequality in many different ways. And when we lose compassion, we stop looking for that. We pretend it's not there. So how can we understand this compassion for others? How can we maybe add more? Well, first of all, let's understand what happens when we are compassionate. There are a number of things that happen for us that help us to thrive. The first thing is that when we show compassion for others, when we understand compassion, it triggers a feel-good response in our brain, and it it, it begins to strengthen the feel-good mechanisms of our brain. Hormonally speaking, but also in the circuitry of our brain, when we start activating our compassion, we also activate that feel-good cycle. For instance, if you've ever volunteered somewhere to help people who are having a tough time or you've listened to somebody who's having a hard day or you've visited somebody who is down on their luck and you leave and you you realize that you're feeling better, just emotionally feeling better, it's because you've activated that loop. The second thing is there's pretty clear research these days that being compassionate actually improves your own health. Now, here's the irony. (laughs) I'm saying that one of the things that happens without our compassion is we become self-centered. We self-aggrandize. Now I'm telling you that by being compassionate, you actually take care of yourself. And so I don't want to lose track of the importance of being compassionate, but I also want you to understand that there are thriving reasons in our health that this matters. It improves our health. For instance, those who are more compassionate have lower heart Uh, illness risk than those who are less compassionate by research. 
One of the things that we hypothesize is that being compassionate somehow activates the vagal nerve system. The vagus nerve in your body goes throughout your system all the way to your brain. Vagus means to wander, and it's the wandering nerve path through your whole system. When your vagus is calm, you end up having a lower uh, heart rate, lower respiration, lower adrenaline flow in your system. Everything's calmer. You're, if you're looking at the difference between being calm and alert or alarm, you're closer to that calm state. And I've talked about this in other podcasts, that the vagal nerve system, the vagus nerve, is what calms when you take a big deep breath, when you hum, when you sing, and when you're compassionate. It adds a natural calm to that. The third thing that happens is that it makes us more resilient to stress. By understanding the difficulties that somebody else is going through, it helps us be more resilient to the difficulties we will face. It makes us more resilient to stress. Number four, it's also the core of good relationships. If you can be more compassionate about the struggle your child is going through, the more um, rich that relationship is. The more compassionate you might be towards a spouse or a friend, the more depth there is to that relationship. In fact, more compassionate people have stronger relationships. The nice thing is we can build compassion. It's not whether you have it or not. It's whether you build the skills of compassion. And finally, the fifth piece is that we who are more, those who are more compassionate are more socially adept. They're able to navigate relationships better. So we, as we work on our compassion, can be better socially, relationally, be more resilient to stress, lower our health risks, and feel better all at the same time. Now let's add in the other piece of self-compassion. Self-compassion is the place where you understand that you're not going to do things perfectly and you give yourself a break, not that you, you know, you, you let yourself off the hook, but that you give yourself a break when you're not perfect. Sometimes people are afraid to be self-compassionate because they're afraid they'll just go, oh, well, whatever. Right. And that's not what self-compassion is. Self-compassion realizes that you don't need to be constantly beating up on yourself about where you haven't done what you wanted to get done because None of us do. That's the nature of life. We'll talk about some ways of, of cultivating that in just a minute, but I want you to understand self-compassion as being a place where you can see yourself from a place of compassion, from a place of, of empathy. Just understand that struggles in life mean that we're never going to do it perfectly and that there are some places that we can learn from that. So how do you cultivate it? So here's the thing. It turns out that compassion is not whether you're born with it or not. It's something you can actually develop and focus on. And so it's not a, a natural to be, it's not that it's unnatural to be compassionate. In fact, I think what, what ends up happening is over time, we actually cover up our compassion. But we can unearth it. Not only can we unearth it, but we can get better at it. So it's a skill that we can learn. It's a skill that we can grow. So how can we do that? Here's some ways that you can cultivate your own sense of compassion. The first one is to remember the times where you got support, where you needed support, had a tough time, and where you got that support. 
So just thinking back on the places where in your own life you benefited from somebody else's compassion. Someone stepped alongside of you. Maybe it was a mentor or a parent or a coach or some other significant person or maybe even a stranger in a situation who saw you needing some help and stepped in and helped you. Just doing that does a couple of things. One is it makes you realize that we all need that help. Two is it gives you some ideas on how to be that. And three, it roots you in the fact that compassion is what makes life a little bit easier for all of us when we can extend that to each other. The second thing that you can do is to put the human face on suffering. Sometimes we want to turn away from suffering and to be able to think about the person. My wife does this so well. You know, I'll be in the midst of missing something and she'll say, well, think about if this was a friend of yours or a family member or think about if it was you. She's helping me put a human face on a difficult situation, on the suffering that someone's going on. The third thing is look for commonalities over the differences with people. Think about what a difference that would make if we as humans stop looking for the small differences between us and started looking about how we're all in this together, the commonalities that we all share, rather than seeing the division points that we would rather drive home. When we look for the differences, we cut ourselves off from our natural compassion. I believe that we as humans are naturally built to be compassionate, and we have to actively work against that. We have to actively hide that from ourselves. Otherwise, we'd have to take different action. And so part of the task is to look for our commonalities rather than exploiting those differences. Number four is to practice cooperation over competition. You know, so many times uh, I heard uh, one of my mentors say, in this helping world, there is no competition. And he was talking about running different counseling programs. And he said, you know, you've got to cooperate with those in your community. Don't see yourself as competition. Sometimes I've recommended books and programs from other people in my field, and I've had people who have said, why would you recommend your competitor? And my response is, I don't have a competitor. We're here to help humans be better. I'm here to do that, and if I can point the direction to somebody that can help, I'm not competing. I'm helping. And that is so true in all of life that we often get so caught up in the competition that we miss the places where we could cooperate. In fact, even the business world has understood this, and they've started talking about coopetition, where you may work together, even if you have a business difference, to find the interest together, how to move forward together. So look for the places where we can cooperate. Number five, Look for the individuals instead of looking at a group. There's been a lot of research on how do we change perceptions of other people. It's not how we change our minds about social issues, but how do we we change the perceptions of people who see things differently? One of the groups that has worked on this would bring various diverse groups that usually have very polarized political views on different social issues together. And what they would do is have the people come together for a couple of days. And the first night, you were not allowed to say in any way or indicate in any way where you stood on an issue. 
All you were supposed to do was get to know each other, to have social interactions, to tell stories, to talk about your, your growing up and, and where you are in life and all of those pieces. Then the next day, you revealed where you stood on policies. And then you could have conversations with people who saw things differently about why you saw things differently, how your own stories intersected with how you came to different viewpoints. And what people often realized is they would have very similar experiences with opposite outcomes on understanding of things. The second thing and the bigger piece of this was it allowed people to see a different viewpoint not just as a whole group of people that you can just say that's that's that group that's wrong, but as individuals who come to that view in different ways. This is the only way we make headway. Number six, avoid the blame game. When somebody's had a hard time, to only look at that hard time and blame the person for putting themselves into that misses the bigger pieces of this. Blame rarely moves to change. And it rarely allows us to find a, a different place to be. So avoid the blame game. And seven, seek to make a difference. How can you make the world better? It goes back to that contribution. Compassion often leads us to the places where we contribute to how the world could be better by our own actions. Which brings us to the next piece of this, of self-compassion. How do you work on that? Because many times people tell me that they don't want to move towards self-compassion on the fear <laughs> that they will somehow let themselves off the hook and never be able to get any better. And I think they miss the point of self-compassion. The first point of self-compassion, of how to work on that for yourself, is to seek to understand and accept who you've been, where you've been, and why that influences the decisions you've made. You can always work to make better decisions. You can always work to do better in situations, but you need to understand that they didn't come in a vacuum, that that's part of your experience. Many of, uh, of the people who struggle through things struggle through because of past experiences. So part of how we understand people from the outside is also what we want to do from the inside to see that our own history does affect how we react in the moment. The second thing is to avoid heaping hurt on ourselves. I've watched people who make a bad choice, bad decision, and start looking for every other bad choice and bad decision and run through their inventory of the places they can basically flog themselves, beat themselves for past mistakes. It rarely helps. And instead of dealing with what's going on in the moment, they find themselves heaping more and more hurt on themselves to almost punish themselves, to self-flagellate, to use the, the term, and kind of beat yourself up more and more over that as if that's going to help you move forward. Number three, See yourself through loving eyes. Use the eyes that others have for you. Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent or a friend or somebody else that can look at you differently than you see yourself. I've often noted that the ways we talk to ourselves, the way I talk to myself, the way we all talk to ourselves, we would never talk.
tolerate from a friend. They would not be our friend. And yet we do it to ourselves. Instead of maybe thinking of ourselves as that friend might, as that family member might, as a loved one might. And so use loving eyes to view yourself a little bit, just to give yourself a little distance from the places where you fell short. Which leads to number four, accept the fact that there are going to be imperfections. All of us have them. It's part of being human. You can't do it perfectly. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Your task is to get better and better, but you're still going to have imperfections. And so accept the fact that there are imperfections. Now, that leads to number five, where we can, though, focus on our points of control. And this works in two ways. As I was talking about that code piece of control, what I said is we often try to control things we can't. And I notice lots of times people spend a lot of time beating up on themselves about things over which they have no control. The second piece is that people don't control what they could control. The three things you have to control are um, you, the way you, you, what you want to move towards in life, your aspirations. Also, the attitude you hold in life. Can you figure it out or do you walk away? And actions. So aspirations, attitude, and actions. That's all you have to control. So anything that falls outside of that, you need to recognize your incapacity to control those things and stop beating yourself up over that. And number six, use the growth mindset. Carol Dweck says that there are two mindsets. There's the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. The growth mindset says that experience helps us to learn to do better. Fixed mindset says this is the way we are. This is the way we were born. This is just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. The growth mindset, on the other hand, says how can I grow from this? How can I learn from this? How can I use this to grow rather than just allowing it to be where I beat myself up? A growth mindset is part of what self-compassion allows to say, you know what? I didn't do what I wanted there. Now I've got to figure out how to do better. So here's the thing. Finding compassion is something we can work on every day. We can rediscover our own place of compassion and expand that compassion, whether to ourselves or to others. The skill we have, the skill we can grow. Work to find your compassion and add that to your thriving code. You've been listening to the Thriveology Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thriveology.com or at thriveologymagazine.com. Remember that Thriveology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Thank you.